Welcome to the Steve Barkley Ponders Out Loud podcast. As instructional coaches and school leaders, you have a challenge to guide continuous teacher growth that promotes student success. This podcast looks to support you with strategies from our experienced guests and insights that I've gathered across many years. I'm thrilled you're here. Thanks for listening. Every child, every day, every way. I recently had the opportunity to interview Dr. Kevin McGowan, the superintendent in Brighton Central School District in New York State, and the current New York State and National Superintendent of the Year. Dr. McGowan detailed how the district obtained substantial increases in student success by focusing on a vision of every child, every day, every way. As you listen, consider the impact of that focus over a too often practice in many schools and districts of most children, most days, some ways. Welcome, Dr. McGowan, and congratulations. Thanks, Steve. So happy to be here, and thank you very much for the kind words. I'm wondering, for starters, if you'd share with people a little bit about the uh, Brighton Central School District. Oh, I'd love to. We are a 3,600 approximately student district, first ring suburb, Rochester, New York, which is uh, upstate New York State, uh, small city. And again, we're first ring suburb to that. Pretty diverse community, uh, 67% Caucasian students, 33% a variety of students from different places and backgrounds. Uh, experiences, races, colors, creeds. We have a religiously diverse environment as well. Um, just a, a, a great melting pot of human beings focused on their families, focused on education, uh, focused on doing th- good things and being connected to each other. A 600 staff member, vibrant group of people focused on the needs of kids each day. Really enjoyable community to be a part of. How long have you been there, Kevin? 14 years. Wow. Yeah. And quite a long start time. A, start as superintendent? Or I did. You did? Yep. yep. I was superintendent of previous district uh, for a few years, Warsaw and Wyoming County, New York, and then began my work 14 years ago in Brighton. Terrific. Terrific. I, I know that you've um, based your work and the district's work around a belief statement of uh, every child, every day, in every way. And I wondered if you'd share with us a little bit about how you that was arrived at and- uh, and, and what that caused to happen. That was really about us discovering, acknowledging, owning up to the fact that we weren't about every child, every day, every way. I don't think anybody in the organization at the time this started to develop uh, was not interested in individual kids or was uncaring about children or, or, or frankly was uh, purposefully not servicing every child. But our story really began with digging into the idea that achievement wasn't where it should be for everybody, uh, but achievement really wasn't for underrepresented students in particular. Um, it was a series of conversations and, and you know, kind of a few landmark moments, but really I began in the district 2009. Uh, we started to have a lot of conversations about the achievement of children and, and what the numbers were telling us and what our experiences were telling us. And we were seeing more and more students struggle in our school environment. And I say struggle in our school environment, it's, it's really important to point out that Brighton was a traditionally high-performing school district for many, many years, 
a lot of great accolades. It was known as this place where public education was at a very high level. Um, Monroe County in general has been known that way, Monroe County, New York. And, and you know, our school was a great example of that. I said to many people, <clears throat> excuse me, when uh, deciding to come to Brighton, for me, it was about the chance to play for the Yankees, which works with most people unless they're a Red Sox <laughs> fan, right? Uh, and, and for my children to go there. So I have a graduate of the system. I have a senior right now, <clears throat> excuse me, and a, and a, a current uh, fifth grader that I often point out as my favorite child by far, which is important in this dynamic, <laughs> our daughter. And, you know, we, we, my wife and I decided we wanted to be there because for us, the professional decision, the the move to a different district or to a bigger district and different opportunity had a lot to do with wanting for our children uh, something extraordinary and searching for that and knowing that where I was going to work and live would be the same place. So we came to a place that was, again, traditionally high-performing, well-known, and, and thought to be that. And through the first several years of my experience, we began to discover that that maybe wasn't the case for all kids and that achievement wasn't where it should be. And it was... Um, covered up by the fact that still in the district, many kids were going to great schools, highly competitive colleges, universities, Ivy League schools. There were still accolades for the district and national awards being won. But when you dug a little bit deeper, you saw that our graduation rate wasn't where you would have expected it for a high-performing place. But our graduation rate for kids from underrepresented populations was in, in a very, very different place. For example, in 2013, our graduation rate was 89%. And in a high-performing place, you wouldn't think that you'd be at that place. But our graduation rate for some groups, particularly African-American students, was 55%. Shameful. And it was about really digging into what does that mean? So we're, although we're 3,600 students, you know, ballpark 250 to 300 graduates per year, that's small enough. I'd make the argument everywhere is small enough if you do it right, where you can dig into the performance of every individual child and say, what is it that went wrong for that child? Where could we have been better? What, what should we have known, predicted? use predictive analytics to think about where that child might struggle and then avoid that struggle or help them work through a, a productive struggle and, 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 and overcome that. What we learned about our system was that we had a lot of barriers to break down. We had some obstacles for kids and we really needed to focus much more on each individual child. So, so that's where it began. It grew over time through a variety of strategies we'll probably touch on today, but our mission, vision, core values evolved as well till we reached a point where we looked at each other and said, this is really what we're about and what best describes us. And, and in a very organic way, that catchphrase came to be. I'm, uh, I'm, as I'm listening to you, I'm almost hearing the, uh, the good to great uh, kind of uh, a, approach. And I've, I've always suggested that one of the most difficult places for a school leader to land is in a good school uh, because people have a lot of evidence of of good around them, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it's uh, it's it, it's it's difficult at times to get them to uh, think through. Sometimes it means we need to stop doing some of the good things in order to start doing some of the great things. Am, am, am I uh, am I okay on my uh, connection there? Oh, I think you're spot on. I think Jim Collins would be proud to see a district say, <laughs> you know, one, maybe we're not as great as we think we are, although there's a great danger when leaders start to express that to their organization. No. So I, I cautiously would uh, work with people to not ever say that, to not ever tell the people who've been doing great work for a long time, in yeah. their, particularly in their mind and in their perception, and had what they thought was great success 
uh, I think it's offensive and disrespectful to start to tell people, you know, you're not not quite as great as you are. And I think it's a huge mistake for a leader. But building capacity and pointing out where people's greatest strengths have been and where they've been most successful and really appealing to their inner humanity to say, let's can we do that for more kids? What what else can we do to to grow that? Boy, this is really working well. How do we how do we expand that? But it's awfully hard for people to let go of the things that have been going well for some period of time, maybe not as, as great as they could be, but some period of time. And the thing that they put a lot of effort into growing and innovating and starting maybe 20 years ago, they don't forget that. So asking somebody to let go of that, boy, that's awfully hard. In our district, we talk about pruning in order to replant or to grow differently and uh, try and be very respectful of what may have been in place, but move towards something that maybe builds on that as opposed to just replaces it. I, I want to try another uh, a line on you to see if uh, it, uh, it connects uh, as, as I listen to that. I, I, I've described that it's being able to go to the school board and to the community and celebrate that we're the best we've ever been and have someplace else we need to go. We often talk right now about the fact that the journey is not done and that we're just one step on that journey. We emphasize that all the time. I mentioned those numbers in 2013. This past year, our graduation rate was 98%. And our plus or minus gap off of the 98% for marginalized groups of students is just 2%. So some awesome. are 100, some are 96. But I think we're a very rare place where our students, by the way, since that time, we have grown in our diversity. We have grown in our economic diversity. So in other words, we're more diverse and more poor, yet our achievement's never been better. It is the highest graduation rate in our region, in pretty much our half of the state, and compares to most schools nationally, the the niche rating that just came out, we were 64 of 13,000 schools, school districts in the country. So something is working, but the great part about it is we, we talk all the time about success for some kids is not true success for an organization. It's not success unless it's for all kids. Accessible to all kids, but actually being achieved by all kids. But we say all of the time, we're still on the journey and we have work to go. Because until that's 100% and 100% for all children, we haven't reached that point. And frankly, it's not even just about that graduation rate. Now, for us, it's about mastery. And what percentage of kids are leaving us with an AP course? It's 74% right now, but why isn't that 100? What is it in particular groups that we could be doing to make sure they're accessing the full experience engaging in school beyond just academic success and, and graduation? Are they getting everything they can out of the school experience, that K-12 experience? Question we always ask, how do we get to the next level? I listened to um, a few of the uh, presentations that you've made and read a little bit about you, and a word's kind of popping out uh, as a thread going through that that I want to run by you, and that's uh, a team. Hmm. It seems team's important to you. Could you expand on that? I don't think it happens without team. Um, you know, the national award you mentioned at the beginning it has been a, a really wonderful experience and uh, one that I will will never forget and always cherish and appreciate deeply. Uh, an individual recognition can be a little bit uncomfortable sometimes, and, and I'm not feigning humility. I'm proud of the work. I, I think I'm reasonably good at what I do, and I try hard to get better all the time. Uh, I work hard at it, but I also don't teach global studies. I don't teach kindergarten. <laughs> I'm not the primary principal, and I'm definitely not the middle school principal or assistant principal for that matter, right? Uh, I have a, uh, a reasonable sense of how our dollars and cents work and are, are, can ask the right questions financially, but our assistant superintendent 
who handles the finance side and HR side and administration side, a guy by the name of Lou Alimo, is a true expert at what he does. Our assistant superintendent for curriculum instruction, uh, a woman named Dr. Elson Rio, is a true expert in what she does. And, and I don't know that as well as she does. Our director of student uh, services, support services, Deanna Spagnola, is an expert in the special education and support for student area. Our principals are an expert in each of their spaces. And then they also bring a different lens to the work. You know, uh, their leadership tends to be either financial or political or analytical, uh, practical in some cases. And we think about those frames all of the time. If everybody is able to maximize their performance, their talent, their, their work in their particular area of expertise, and I'm somehow able to, to conduct that and, and, and be a part of that and, you know, point to the oboe section when we need to and to the percussion section when we need to, boy, it's a gift. And I, I can't do all those things. I, I'm not an expert at any one of them. Um, I just have absolute uh, good fortune to be the conductor of incredibly talented people who are so committed to kids and who love working together and are committed to that together. Uh, but they're the ones that are doing it. So so it's been great, but it's about all of them, frankly. I, I'd like to drill down a, sure. a little bit more with that. Uh, and you use the word conductor. So I, I'm wondering if, if you'd start, if you're taking a team approach, then how does that affect the way you do your job? Uh, I, well, I think it's a it's about both skills and dispositions and thinking about that. So one, in terms of dispositions, not having to be the one that decides everything and being comfortable letting go, right? And uh, recognizing that you don't, being self-aware, recognizing that you don't have the expertise in each area, always knowing that you ultimately have the responsibility to, to answer for the decision and, and you have to do that. But just being self-aware and not having to be in charge all the time, not having to control a decision, not having to dominate a meeting or hear yourself talk. I mean, I, I'm doing plenty of talking this morning, but I don't need to, right? In any given meeting, I'm really happy to let other people shine. Um, I often say in our district with a lot of smart people, if you have to be the smartest person in the room, number one, for me personally, I'm not going to be. Number two, if I feel that need, it's likely going to stifle other people and and just not be a pleasant work environment for folks. So I think dispositionally, being able to let go, let other people shine, being humble in your leadership, modest about that work, really makes a big, big difference. And then in terms of skills, just recognizing that they have different skill sets that you can maximize. Going back to the conductor analogy, I recognize that, that conductors have a tremendous amount of skill and probably play several instruments, but they're not a virtuoso in each section of the orchestra, right? So I think really recognizing that, understanding that, and then and then trusting in that. I look at it too as being a little bit of the keeper of the flame, right? So bringing the organization back to the strategic plan, bringing us back to what is our what is our focus? That every every child, every day, every way, and asking hard questions. Sometimes it's uncomfortable. These are people you care about, you work closely with, but trying to push them to a place where we're saying, is that really the best we can do? I mean, this was an opportunity for excellence. Is there a way we can do that better? And it, it pains me to ask you this question because I love you, but did you think about how that parent mm-hmm. would have would have received that? Because I can tell you how it would have felt as a dad to me or to my wife as a mom in the district. So um, really having the courage to ask difficult questions and bring people back to where does that fit in our plan? I know it's a great idea. I love that you're thinking about that, but strategically, is that going to get us where we want to go? 
How does that focus on team impact the way the people in your system then work with each other and, and carry out their roles? Well, I think that when everything depends on one person, it paralyzes people in the organization as well. So I, I really like how you asked that because it, that is a that is a key where a principal can call an assistant superintendent and get an answer quickly with confidence that that's going to be the answer. That it's not going to be, well, is, is Kevin going to say something different? And, and be paralyzed by that. I mean, there are things that happen all of the time. Uh, you know, a quick example off the top of my head is a perhaps a, a contentious custody situation and a principal is struggling at the end of the day at dismissal to figure out when somebody shows up to pick up their child that's not supposed to and how to manage that and work through that. And it becomes a legal question. It becomes a liability question, a transportation question. If they have to wait for Kevin to weigh in on that, it's going to cause a big problem, right? Because either I may be somewhere else doing something mm -hmm. else, engaged in something else, but also I'm likely going to rely on the experts around me to, to help sort through that decision. They know they can call one of the assistant superintendents and get a, a, a great answer, a thoughtful answer, and an answer that I'll support. On a curriculum issue, our principal may be working with a group of teachers, for example, on a difficult topic. Perhaps it's, it's the use of racist language in literature, how to manage that in the classroom. And a situation arises where a parent is concerned that their child will um, have a difficult conversation in class. If they need to wait for me to weigh in on that situation, they're not likely going to do their best work in working with the parent and the child to support them. But if they can get support from the assistant superintendent or somebody else, other instructional leaders that we've put in place, and they recognize that that answer is as good, good as gold in the organization, they're likely to be able to operate more efficiently and more effectively. And then when we're all working as a team with that same notion of what our mission, vision, core values are, and, and they know ultimately where I would land on the decision, and we, we're, we're kind of speaking that same language all the time, it really helps us to be connected in our decision-making and avoid the pitfalls that come with maybe a poor decision that didn't recognize organizationally what we would have wanted to do, and now we've got to backtrack, and parents are upset. We avoid a lot of those things, I think, because we really are all on the same page all the time and consistent in that work. So maybe hard question. Do you think it plays all the way down to teachers and students in classrooms then? I hope so. But I think the challenge right now for teachers is in the current environment relative to scrutiny and criticism. And uh, people, are, people aren't moderating their opinions very often. And, and we're in a very supportive district with, with great parents. I think there's an anxiety level from staff members about some of those decisions. Uh, you know the, the instructional decisions that deal with equity in particular and, and diversity and how to manage it, that people are afraid to be criticized in one way or another, or, or particularly publicly criticized. I think it, it gets to that level in the sense that they know they can count on their principal for a good answer and they can be supported and that the district will support them. I don't think that they're, I think they're concerned about it, but I don't think that they doubt that. I think that we've shown time and time again that even when people make mistakes, mistakes are learning opportunities to work through how can we best approach that going forward? How can we learn from the person who was harmed in that situation? And we have a very, I think, productive and positive approach to that. Uh, but, but I think it would be foolish for me to think that everybody all the time is completely comfortable in that space. Sometimes they really just do need that support and the, the backup from another person. Um, you use the word uh, uh, difficult conversations, uh, c controversial conversations. Uh, I'm sure you had to meet uh, many of them along the uh, path that you've traveled here. I'm wondering if you have a couple of uh, 
suggestions for superintendents and school leaders uh, when they when they know they have to go in and have those conversations? Are there some mindsets you have going in, some protocols that you use to uh, to guide that? I'd say three things jump off the, the the top of my head. One is stop talking. Ironically, because I keep talking, but stop talking. Just listen. Spend a lot of time listening to people. Be vulnerable. The second would be say to people in that moment, tell me more. Instead of jumping to explain why something was done and we didn't mean it that way or, geez, I don't think that's racist, which is entirely offensive to the person who is saying to you that it is, those three words, tell me more, set an entirely different tone for the conversation. You are expressing to people your willingness to be vulnerable, to be open, to be thoughtful, and, and just receptive to the feedback, and to learn. I think every one of these conversations is an opportunity to learn. And then finally, the third piece would be just really focus at, at the end of the day and keep the meeting focused on what is the need of the child? What can we do to help your child? I often ask people at the beginning of some difficult conversations, what is it you're hoping will come from this conversation? What, what would you like to accomplish? What is the solution that will have you walking away from this feeling good about where we landed? And I often find by doing that, we're not far apart from the beginning of the conversation. I can often say, great, I think we can get to that place. Let's start to work. And that changes, again, the whole tone of the conversation, reduces the adversarial nature of some of these conversations. But I think just as a human being, being thoughtful and vulnerable and opening that space up for dialogue really helps. I'm wondering if you have some thoughts on districts that are performing uh, at the level that, uh, that that your district is, uh, looking ahead, future-oriented. Um, what do you spot as some of the directions that uh, people who are having a high achievement want to be looking at as a, a next step or continuous growth for them as a system? I think one of the most obvious answers, and I'd probably echo it, is just understanding the potential for artificial intelligence and what that might mean for the workplace, um, how people can manage it. I'm not afraid of that. I think a lot of people are jumping to a lot of conclusions early on about ChatGPT and other platforms that you know, are going to change everything dramatically. I think at the end of the day, we still need human beings to, to communicate with each other and, and work together. Which leads me to what I think is really what we need to be thinking about is how do you help young people develop grit and perseverance, uh, mindfulness? You know, we, we work a lot on habits of the mind in our district, but how do you work with other people? How do you um, just engage in a way that as a human being can be productive? Um, not be as fragile as I think uh, sometimes, particularly in the current environment, you know, as we think about post-COVID, how do you help people just persevere and figure it out in the world? I, I think about it again from the lens as a as a parent with a 21, 18, and, and 11 year old, and you know there are moments of disappointment in the world, and that's okay. We figure it out. Let's send that person an email. How do you work through that? You know, I see my one, uh, my oldest uh, is uh, as a college student. I'll see the Facebook page with parents from his his university, which is interesting to me that there's even a Facebook page just for parents. But <laughs> there are occasionally uh, helpful tidbits about, you know, something that's coming up on the calendar or whatever, but there are also occasionally posts from parents and uh, unfortunately more often than you'd, you'd like to think about, you know, this professor didn't get back to my child, is this normal, wow. et cetera, et cetera. And I, it, it just boggles my, it shouldn't <laughs> blow me away because of what I do, but 
<laughs> I I would never post about that myself personally. I know my wife wouldn't. And our conversation with with our child would be email the professor. Yeah. This, you know, this is these, these are some strategies, right? So we have to give people tools to work through those things. And uh, there are a lot of people trying to solve some of those problems, I think, for their children. Um, And as educators, helping to give people just tools more than anything. Content is important. Learning how content can be used to learn from the past and to engage in society and you know how how to appreciate and understand literature and 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 how to be aware of history and what that means in our world because you know I think we're more productive citizens when we can engage in intelligent ways like that and we're not likely to have an inspiring dinner conversation by everybody just googling an answer but content is very available I think focusing more and more on skills and how do you how do you grab that content how do you absorb that content how do you use that content as raw material to create more raw material and be productive I think that's important. And at the end of the day, I think right now our democracy depends on thinking about how we develop better citizens who are open to each other's ideas, are willing to meet in the middle somewhere, can thoughtfully discuss issues and engage as citizens and care about the person next to them. I frequently use a statement that uh, there is no mountaintop to education. Uh, If you decided education is where you're going to put your career you don't have to worry about uh, reaching mastery prior to uh, retirement. Uh, so I'm, I'm just wondering if there's a, a, an area that's been uh, a more recent uh, learning focus of yours that you might share with us. I think the diversity, equity, and inclusion space is one that, you know, is, I mean, a great example of never reaching the, the end of the journey or the mountaintop. I mean, it's it is the area we have spent the most energy on over the past five to seven years, I'd say for sure. It is directly aligned with this idea of every child, every day, every way. I mean, if you're really thinking about how to support every individual, you need to be thinking about your unconscious bias, your systemic racism and systemic bias, your own cultural responsiveness, both in the work that's being done with kids, but your own habits and your own approach to work, the way you schedule things in the district. It really permeates everything you're doing. And it is a constant learning experience. And how to be better at that is a constant learning experience. It's probably the area that I feel is the biggest growth area for me personally, past, but going forward too, and the places I need to continue to learn to be an effective leader for all kids. Well, Kevin, it's been just a pleasure for me to uh, have a conversation with you. And I'm, I'm so excited that we're having this opportunity to uh, share this with other leaders in learning. Uh, around the country and uh, and around the world. I'm wondering as as we close out, if there's a, uh, a thought or two that you might uh, put out there to uh, up and coming superintendents, uh, maybe to uh, folks who are landing in their first uh, step into that role or walking into a new district, a couple thoughts about uh, where they'd like to, where they'd likely put a mindset that will lead them forward. Yeah, happy to. First of all, thank you for having me too. And the conversation has been wonderful. I've enjoyed it immensely. I would say to people, stick with it. Stick with it. Persevere. The work has never been more important. And you'll get there. Be patient. Be kind. At the end of the day, simply treat people the way you would like to be treated and continue to focus on every individual child. Work with people in your community to see it that way. Work with your board of education to see it that way. And Often, when you really get it back to that space, most people, even the people that disagree with us the most, will end up agreeing if we're focused on individual children 
that we're probably heading in the right direction, that we're well-intentioned in that work. But we've never needed great leadership more. I'm thrilled that you're highlighting these conversations about leadership. I hope I've been able to add a tidbit or two for people to pick up on. I just think rely on the people around you. Don't become isolated. It can be a very isolating position. Connect with other superintendents, other leaders, and, and constantly think about how do you evolve, but how do you just simply be kind, thoughtful, responsive, and keep focusing on individual children? That seems to be something that will get you through the most difficult times. Thank you. And again, congratulations. My pleasure. I hope that Dr. McGowan's insights and practices have sparked you to consider all of our work being focused on every child, every day, every way. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, folks. I'd love to hear what you're pondering. You can find me on Twitter or LinkedIn at Steve Barkley. Or send me your questions and find my videos and blogs at barclaypd.com. 